0: Starting a new series, and by a new series, I mean you're getting one Sunday, then you're getting a second Sunday, and then we're stopping it most likely. It's not on the entire book of Revelation, but it's on the beginning of the book of Revelation. And so, because you can't say it that plainly, you have to come up with an artsy title, so it's Revelation, the beginning of the end. Yes, it's the beginning of that book, it's the introduction of it. Now, most people, when they read Revelation, you know, they skip past maybe the first three chapters because you want to get to the good stuff in chapter 4 and on, right? That's the part that has the weird stuff. Uh, in the first service, I kept using the word kooky. Maybe I'll use it in here. But it has the things that, that seem outlandish. It's the futuristic stuff. It's the stuff that's yet to happen. And you long for that. And God wants to share that with you. So he gave us the book of Revelation. But he sets it up in a very specific way with chapter 1, 2, and 3. And we're going to look at that today. You know, a lot of churches have kind of gotten away from Revelation because of what maybe some people have done with it. And they might not even quite understand it, to be honest with you. Too often we get distracted by, or uh, I would say, by the details that are there. And we think, what is that? How does that work? I'm not sure what that is. And we miss the big overarching story of what God's doing. And I think Revelation is best read. It took me a while to get there. Best read, after you read through it and read through it, read through it, you take a step back and you look at it and you see what's repetitive and what happens over and over again. And what happens over and over again, what's repeated is clearly the most important thing. If you know anything about following God, he will repeat what he wants you to do. If you know anything about scripture, he will repeat what he wants you to know. If you know anything about prayers, you will repeat what you need him to do in your life because repetition is the way that God continually communicates with us, repetition, and he desires you to know what it is that's most important to him. In Revelation, as you read through it, you look at the repetition and it just pops out at you. You know, the book is called The Revelation or Revelation of Jesus Christ. When I grew up, oftentimes I hear people talk about it and they call it revelations with plural. And then I was beat over the head with it. Hey, it's not revelations, it's revelation. It's not revelations, it's revelation. It's not revelations, it's revelation. That's the illustration I'm repeating. But also what that is, is it's emphasis. Emphasis. The reason it's called the revelation isn't because there aren't other revelations within this book that we learn and we grow from. The reason it's called revelation is because the revelation of Jesus Christ, his unveiling, his revealing, is such great significance. It overshadows completely everything else that's going on at that time. Any other word that's in there, you just look at and you turn to Jesus and you say, oh my goodness. Because Jesus is the answer. Jesus is the one. It's something that we actually connect with. How many of y'all grew up watching Scooby-Doo cartoons? Anybody? Yeah. There's a part in every single uh, cartoon. The story might change. The people might be a little different. They might act a little different. But there's something that happens at the end of it. It happens every single time. It's their staple. It's what they want you to know. It's the unveiling, the revealing of the villain, who is Mr. Lucas, who owns a milk store down the street, and for some reason got this wild hair, just get rid of the crazy kids. But those crazy kids, they were the ones that spoiled everything for the milkman. That is a pun, and I intended it. Took some of y'all a while others are still thinking about it. <laughs> this is the unveiling of Jesus. Revelation is the unveiling of Jesus for all times, uninhindered. You you see him so clearly, you have to turn to him. And he's unmistakable too. It's amazing. A lot of people didn't in church history didn't actually respect the book of Revelation. Did y'all know that? Martin Luther never wrote. A commentary on the book of Revelation. Didn't think it was worth his time. Jonathan Calvin, John Calvin didn't write a commentary on Revelation. What about Zwingli? Very few of y'all know who he is. He didn't write a commentary on Revelation either. It was looked down on. And I think it's looked down on just because it's, it's this prophetic literature. It's this prophetic literature that when they got into it, they said, oh, that's weird. But if you take a step back and you see what's going on, you realize it is 100% inspired by God because it connects so well with so many of the prophetic literature in the Old Testament and then also what Jesus said when he was walking on this earth. It connects so well that it's almost as if Jesus wrote it himself, which he did, and he gave it to John, who gave it to us. I believe in the inerrancy. I think it's amazing. And too often people, uh, they don't want to read it because they're confused by uh, what it says in there. They don't quite understand it. But I think the best principle of Revelation is what Mark Twain said about the Bible. You know what he said? It's not the passages I don't understand that keep me up at night. It's the ones that I do. And one thing that's overwhelmingly clear in the book of Revelation is that Jesus wins. He wins and he shares it with those people that follow him. If you hear anything from this sermon, know that Jesus wins and he shares it with those people that follow him and believe in him. That could be you if you don't believe. Let me share with you how this book starts out. It's written by a man named John. John was an apostle. At this time, I believe he's the last living apostle. He is stuck on the Isle of Patmos because he has been imprisoned. He has been imprisoned by this emperor over Rome named Domitian. Now, Domitian, I don't have time for this story, but I'm, obviously I'm about to tell it. Domitian is the Caesar over all of Rome. And you know what Domitian's problem is? is he's a little paranoid. Um, he's a little paranoid because what he decided, it was time to reenact emperor worship within the kingdom. So he forced everybody to worship the emperor, the Caesar, which is him himself. However, there's a group of people that believed in this man called Jesus Christ as the king, and he felt like they did not worship him. So he began attacking Christians, more so than Nero ever did in the 60s. And so when he attacked them, he would throw them in prison. He would kill them. He would torture them. He would do those things. And John was one of those people that was thrown on the Isle of Patmos. I believe John escaped. And I believe John escaped because this man, Domitian, went a little kooky. I told you I was going to use it, and I did. He went a little kooky. He was very paranoid because he had a dream. He had a dream that Minerva, who is this goddess of Rome, is the equivalent of Athena, who is the the goddess of warfare in Greece, came to him in a dream. And when she came to him in a dream, she said, I can no longer protect you. Through going to visit a temple, he realized there was an omen that he would die at noontime. And so Domitian decided he was going to prevent this from happening. So he kicked everybody out of his presence, locked himself in his chambers for hours in the middle of the day until a servant would let him know the time had passed, and then he would come out. And every day he would celebrate being able to live another day. Well, people started catching on that you couldn't go visit him for his help during that time, so the place became empty. The only people around were servants. Because the servants were the only ones around, he thought maybe they're the ones conspiring against me and he grew paranoid. He started killing them. He started putting them in prison, and they started looking around saying, you know what? We're going to be gone if we don't do something about this, and so this guy named Stephanus, who was one of his servants, decided to fake an injury, and he had his arm wrapped up like a cast at that time, whatever a splint or a cast would look like at that time, and he wore it around for days on end until Domitian didn't grow suspicious of him, because he was one of his higher-ups. Well, Since no one was at the palace and no one was at the place where he stayed at that time, they figured that was the best time to trick him. So they told him, before the time was up, knowing no one would come up to the palace at that time, that the time was over. And so he said, well, who's my first appointment to meet with? And they said, Stephanus. Stephanus walks in. He has a dagger in his fake cast. He pulls it out, and he stabs him seven times and kills him. All the people that were imprisoned because of his paranoia were then released. And John went to Ephesus, I think, and he met the people he wrote this letter of Revelation to. When that happened, that was in 96, the year 96. And so we know that he wrote it sometime before then, I think closer to 92 to 94, somewhere in there. One other thing I want to say about John, which is pretty interesting, is John was called... One of the sons of thunder, because he wanted to cast down judgment on the people that were bad mouthing Jesus at the time and speaking poorly about him and didn't receive him. And Jesus said, No, don't do that. Then he gets to write a book where when he hears Jesus' voice, it comes to him like the sound of thunder. John was a man that was possessed in his life after meeting Jesus, was sharing the light of Jesus Christ. And he wants you to know the light, and that's why he wrote the book of Revelation. Because God gave it to him, to share the light of what would happen in the future. He's the most natural, the most logical person to write this book. In fact, I actually think it's a continuation of what was revealed to Daniel, which we'll look at here in a bit. But without further delay, let's jump into the book of Revelation. The beginning of the end. Verse 1. The first section is the purpose for writing this book. Why would you write it? The revelation from Jesus Christ, which God gave him to show his servants what must soon take place. He made it known by sending his angel to his servant John who testifies to everything he saw, that is, the word of God and the testimony of Jesus Christ. Blessed is the one who reads aloud the words of this prophecy, and blessed are those who hear it and take it to heart, what is written in it, because the time is near. Remember, repetition is a big key. There's a couple things that are repeated over and over in here. Number one, did y'all notice that it says I'm going to be blessed? Because I'm reading it aloud. Hey, if someone ever asks you to preach a sermon or teach a lesson, choose Revelation. Because guess what? God said you'd be blessed if you read it aloud at least. So you can say whatever you want to afterwards as long as you read those words. So naturally, I made a job security choice in choosing Revelation 1. But it also says blessed are you who hear it. And take it to heart. If you hear it this morning, then obviously you'll receive a blessing because it is the word of God shared for you, the church. It is. But if you take it to heart and live by it, not let it be something that comes in one ear and out the other, but just really live by it, then your life will be transformed. One of the things about church and people that are a part of the church is that your life looks different than it did before you knew Jesus Christ. Your life should look different than it did before you knew Jesus Christ. It should radically change the way you think. I remember thinking when I first became a believer, for some reason, I never really grew up cussing and using cuss words. But then I heard people use them. And I was like, oh, I guess that's something we should do. So I started doing that. And then it just started flowing out where I was ru- riding with my parents in a car and for some reason I thought the best adjective was a cuss word. They didn't like that. And so I got in a little bit of trouble. But then when I was in college, I actually became a believer in Jesus Christ. You know what the first thing I had a conviction about? Cussing. It, it, left, a, it left a sour taste in my mouth when I said it. It made me shameful. And I thought, what is this? Why do I feel so guilty about this? And it was one of those things that God was changing in my heart. Because it's not what goes in your mouth that reveals your heart, it's what comes out. And so it changed and transformed me. I think when you read the Bible, when you read Scripture, it transforms you, it changes you. Because you hear the will of God, you hear the words of God, and it transforms you in such a way that you look different. I think Revelation is clearly one of those books that God has written that wants to change us, that wants to help us to transform into something different. And one of the things that makes it so appealing to us is that it gives us hope for the future. It gives us confidence in Jesus Christ. It gives us faithfulness that's on a foundation that can't be moved. I think you're blessed because you hear the will of God and you help to anticipate the way he wants to answer your prayer requests ultimately. How do you get rid of sin in this world? Jesus Christ. And he's coming back to get rid of it all. It should give you hope and transformation at the same time. And then there's something else that's repeated in here. In the first line, it actually says, what must soon take place? God gave him this, what must soon take place? The Greek word is in tacos. It means with rapidity, speedily. There's nothing that could possibly hinder it. And then it ends with, and the time is near. There's an urgency there. When you get to lines like that, you have to ask yourself, why are those lines there? Why with immediacy? Why so fast? Why is the time near? Where's the urgency there? It's interesting to me. Why wouldn't Jesus have just told his apostles when he could come? Number one, he said, no one knows but the Father. I think when he, when he um, in Philippians 2, when it describes him emptying himself to become a man, he released those, that ability to know the future. And even when he's taught to us, he said, the only thing I share with you is what the Father gives me, right? And so the Father didn't give him that to share at that time whenever he was talking with his apostles, now, I think, I think the son knows now because he is in the glory, he is up in heaven, he is uh, with the father right now. I think he knows exactly when it was. But when it came time to share it with everybody, he said, only the father knows. But he did this on purpose. Why wouldn't the father have told us? I think the answer is because faithful living matters to God. If you know exactly when something's gonna happen, And you have to be good for that. You can plan your life around ramping up to being good later. You lose your urgency. You lose your desire and motivation. If you know when it's going to be. I think God graciously protected us by saying it's going to happen soon. So that soon there and that with immediacy there, I think it takes on another meaning. I think it means... There's nothing hindering the next thing to happen that'll start it off. The next thing that'll happen to start it off is actually after chapter four and after chapter five, there's a scene in heaven where the slain Lamb of God opens up the scroll by peeling the seal to start the timetable. Jesus himself, when he was walking with man on earth and he was talking to his disciples and his apostles There on the Mount of Olives, they asked, When will these things take place? And he obviously said, Well, only the Father knows. But then he says, When you see these things happening, he gives us a clock. Now, when I was a kid, uh, I don't know about you, but there's probably a few of you, I'm not sure if kids do this nowadays. You had to learn how to read a face clock, that was like a test. They gave you hands on a clock or they gave you numbers and you had to like draw the lines. you remember that? I remember that. If you don't remember that, well, okay. But in Mississippi, we had to learn to read a face clock. And so you had to learn what 12 o'clock was. 12.30 was 12.35, it's a little different. Oh, what about those in-betweeners? 12.52, you gotta write that down. You gotta draw that with a hand and it's a little bit difficult. You know what I've noticed about face watches as I got older and I started reading them? Is that the face watch you have, it has a 12 at the top, a 6 at the bottom, a 3 over here, and a 9 over here. And it has the numbers all between. But the more expensive the watch is that you buy, the less numbers you have on your face watch. (laughs) Have y'all ever noticed that? You might have a 4 number watch. You might have a no number watch. Oh, the real expensive ones, they don't even have the lines that help you out. Have y'all noticed that? But no one has ever dared to create a watch without hands. Does the hands tell the time. What's the cost of a watch without hands? That's the blood of Jesus Christ. It's something only one man could pay. So how can you tell the time with a watch without hands? It has alarms. It has alarms that go off, that remind you of what Jesus told. This used to be the way people told time. When these communities were built, there was a church in the middle. It had something called a steeple that had a bell hanging from it. And guess what happened at 1 o'clock? The bell rang one time. Some time would go by, and then the bell rang it two times. What do you think that means? It's 2 o'clock. Very good. If the bell rang it six times, what do you think that means? Get home, because dinner's ready. It would alert you to what's coming. That's the way God gives his time clock. It's a watch without hands that have his alarms on it to alert us to what's coming. With immediacy, with rapidity, it causes us to focus on God because faithful living matters. That's the purpose, to give us a clock so that we can look forward to Jesus returning. But then it includes... The people, section two. The people involved in this. Who should read this? Who should look at this? Who are we even talking about? Section two, the person. Revelation chapter one, verse four. John to the seven churches in the province of Asia, grace and peace to you from him who is, who was, and who is to come. Who is, who was, and who is to come is the father. Many of us would read this and we think that's Jesus, right? But here, it's the Father, because the rest of them are described right next to it. And from the seven spirits before his throne. The seven spirits before his throne could have a couple different meanings. Most people agree that this is the Holy Spirit. It's not seven independent spirits, but if you know anything about the number seven, it communicates what? Completeness, wholeness. There's nothing lacking. That's why when... uh, one of the apostles asked Jesus, how many times should we forgive someone? He, seven times? Because he thinks it would be complete at that time. He says, no, seven times seven, or seven times 77, however you want to read it. But the idea is that it's ongoing continuation, completeness ongoing. It's not ever done. It's completed. The Holy Spirit here, seven spirits, shows the completeness of the Holy Spirit, and his fullness is there in the throne room. Many people think this points back to Isaiah 11. You can look it up later in verse 2 and verse 3. It actually describes the Holy Spirit that will descend on Jesse's root or the branch. That's Jesus Christ. It's a prophecy looking forward to who's coming. And it says the Holy Spirit will descend on him. And it describes the Holy Spirit or the Spirit in seven different ways. It says it will rest on him. That's how you'll know. Wisdom provides wisdom. He provides understanding. He provides counsel. Might, knowledge, and fear of the Lord. The Holy Spirit, when it's revealed in Isaiah 11, it's revealed in seven ways. So many people think it's about that, but most people agree that's the Holy Spirit. And then, in verse 5, and from Jesus Christ... Now, normally when you get the Trinity described in Scripture, or when someone describes the Trinity in Scripture, they say the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit in that order, right? Here we have the Father, the Spirit, and the Son. The reason for that is the emphasis. This book is about Jesus. The answer to your question, the answer to your problem is Jesus. Because afterwards, he gives an incredible description of what Jesus has already done for us. So that we can anticipate he's the one that's going to do what we need next. Do you see that? And from Jesus Christ, who is the faithful witness, the firstborn from among the dead, and the ruler of the kings of the earth. Now, that line, the kings of the earth, I think that's just a call out to the book of Daniel. Because I think the book of Daniel is written for people to understand that God is the one that's over all the kings of the earth. I think it says that in the first half of it. In chapter 2 through six, seven, two through 7, that's written in Aramaic. Uh, What happens is, halfway through it, it's a chiastic structure where, you know, it mirrors on both sides. It points to the middle verse. In the middle verse, Nebuchadnezzar makes a confession that God himself of heaven and earth is the one that's over the kings of the earth. And then Daniel goes on to say, well, what is he going to do with the kings of earth before his coming, to reveal his coming? I think Revelation is a continuation of that promise and that prophecy. And I think this is a nod back to it. And then it goes on to say this. Look, he's coming with the clouds and every eye will see him, even those who pierced him. I'm sorry, I skipped a section. It actually says this. To him who loves us and freed us from our sins by his blood, it points to the gospel. This is what he's done for us. He's the one that answered all of our problems by his death and resurrection, right? And has made us to be a kingdom of priests to serve his God and Father. To him be the glory, the power forever and ever. Amen. So it looks back to say, look, he's the one that provided for us what we need. And then he says, this is how he's coming again. It's who he is and what he does. Look, he's coming with the clouds and every eye will see him, even those who pierced him. All the peoples of the earth will mourn because of him, so shall it be. In these little verses, you have some people that are present for it. Do you know how many people are present for this? All of them. All of them. Because it includes us, who've been forgiven for our sins because of Jesus' death on the cross. It includes us, who get to share in his kingdom for all eternity because of him providing that for us. And it also includes the people that pierced him, that were around when Jesus was around. Even when John wrote this in about 92, most of those people, if not all of those people, had already passed. But what you have here is you have those people will be present also at the time, meaning there is a resurrection to witnesses. And it's unmistakable. Look, he's coming with the clouds. In Matthew 24, Jesus talks about how unmistakable it is. He actually says this. At that time, if anyone says to you, look, here's the Christ, or there he is, do not believe it. See, I've told you ahead of time, so if anyone tells you there he is out in the desert, do not go. Here he is in the inner rooms, do not believe it. For as lightning that comes from the east is visible even in the West, so will be the coming of the Son of Man. And then he goes on to say this, they will see the Son of Man coming on the clouds of the sky with great power and great glory. Why is he saying that? Because it's absolutely unmistakable. The final bell that goes off, the final alarm that goes off is Jesus' presence when he returns in the sky. We know the location. We don't have to look for it anywhere else. It's in the sky it's one of the alarms we should know. It's in the sky, it's with the clouds, he was descending on us, and it's at such a point that everyone on earth will be able to see it. How do we know everyone on earth will be able to see it? Well, I think some things happen during the tribulation that actually congregate people to a certain area right before Jesus comes back. Every single person will see it, and all those that are dead will rise to see it again. It's unmistakable, it's very clear. Jesus is the focus. Who he is and what he does is what God wants us to know. Who he is and what he does is what God wants us to know. Who he is and what he does is what God wants us to know. God cares about who he is and what he does. At the Mount of Transfiguration where they saw a glimpse of the kingdom and Elijah came back and Moses came back and Jesus was there and he transformed in all of his glory bright white and he was gleaming in such a way that people couldn't even look at him very much. They heard a sound from heaven where God said, who he is and what he does is important. He said, this is my son whom I love. Listen to him. Because who he is and what he does is important. I'm convinced that uh, one of the ways we make this world harder is we too often are scattered in our focus. We aren't focused on Jesus. We're focused on everything else. And then depending on how things go, we might try to include him into that. We might turn to him, we might pray to him. We say, you know what, before we make a decision, maybe we should pray to Jesus. And we're trying to correct ourselves. We're trying to bring ourselves back. But we don't start with Jesus being the focus of our lives. We actually start with our life. Can Jesus be included in it? And we negotiate that throughout our day. We forget that. I do this too. This is something I do fairly often is that I'll just get moving. And I'll even write it off as the righteous thing to do, by the way. Well, if God really is in control, he's the one that's going to handle this anyway, so I'm just going to start doing this. But that's not what God desires. He doesn't want to correct us over and over again. He wants us to walk obediently over and over and over and over again. And how do you do that? You're focused on Jesus. And even in the midst of all these people that are shared, these persons that are shared right here, the most unmistakable one that's elevated and glorified right here is Jesus Christ. Jesus is the answer. And who he is and what he does matters. The third section, the presence of Jesus. I, John, your brother and companion, in the suffering and kingdom and patient endurance that are ours in Jesus, was on the island of Patmos because of the word of God and the testimony of Jesus On the Lord's day, I was in spirit, and I heard behind me a voice like a trumpet, which said, write on a scroll what you see, and send it to the seven churches, to Ephesus, Smyrna, Pergamum, Thyatira, Sardis, Philadelphia, and Laodicea. Next week, we're going to go over those those letters to the seven churches, and I think you're going to see something, spoiler alert, I think you're going to see something in there that you probably haven't been taught before, and I'm excited about sharing that with you. But these churches are on a road. They're on the most natural road for John to go to if he happens to be freed from the island of Patmos, which I think he is. And you walk through Ephesus, you go up to Pergamum, and you walk all the way down to Laodicea. And notice there's seven of them. If you continued on that road, you would find more churches. It doesn't stop right there. Seven of them is because it's the completed letter for revelation for all the churches to hear and receive. Verse 12. I turned around and I see a voice that was speaking to me. Remember, it was like a trumpet. And when I turned, I saw seven golden lampstands, and among the lampstands was someone dressed like the son of man. You remember when Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego were thrown into the lake of fire, and the, a man looked in there and he said, they're, they're just walking around, and there's a fourth one in there, and he looks like the son of man. It startled him so much. And it goes on to say, he got dressed in a robe, reaching down to his feet. And he went in a gold sash around his chest. He has hair on his head, was white like wool, white as snow. He got his eyes were like blazing fire. His feet were like the bronze glowing in the furnace. And he had this voice that was like the sound of rushing waters. In his right hand, he held seven stars, and coming out of his mouth was a sharp, double-edged sword. This is a strange description of Jesus, is it not? Of all the people who on earth at this time that should have recognized Jesus, it would have been John, right? But John turns, expecting maybe Jesus, he's not sure, an angel, but he sees Jesus in all his glory and the ways in his majesty. And it shakes him. But it's eerily similar to the way Jesus revealed himself to Daniel in chapter 10, Daniel chapter 10. Listen to what Daniel says. Daniel says, I looked up, and there before me was a man dressed in linen with a belt of gold from Upaz around his waist. His body was like topaz, his face was like lightning, his eyes like a flaming torch, his arms and legs like the gleam of burnished bronze, and his voice like the sound of a multitude. This is John's description. And among the lampstands was someone like the Son of Man, dressed in a robe, reaching down to his feet and a golden sash around his chest. The hair on his head was white like wool, as white as snow. And his eyes were like blazing fire, his feet like bronze glowing in a furnace, his voice like the sound of rushing waters. In his right hand, he held seven stars, and coming out of his mouth was a sharp, double-edged sword. His face was like the sun, shining in brilliance. This is the same description or a little bit different description of the exact same image. What Jesus is doing in the presence with John here is the very thing he was doing in the presence with Daniel there. He was sharing with him the future. He was sharing with them the purpose and what's going to happen. And you need to see Jesus in all his glory. Because what does it do? He solves all the problems. Listen to the way some of these descriptions are used in scripture. In Isaiah 6. It talks about the holiness of God, and it talks about his train, his robe, filling the entire temple, like this robe that goes all the way down to the feet of Jesus that's standing there. His golden sash, according to Isaiah 11, is a symbol of righteousness. He's majestic. You know, the last time he saw Jesus, he had a towel tied around his waist. His eyes were like blazing fire. Revealing him not being able to see anything. Daniel says they were like torches. He would be able to see everything. Nothing will be hidden from him. His feet like bronze shows his justice and his immovable will. His feet like rushing water shows his command and his sovereignty. His voice is so loud. Have you Have you stood next to an ocean lately, like with good waves? It's so loud. Have you ever heard a waterfall like a good waterfall? Not the trickle waterfalls, but the good ones that you can hear from in the forest, and you come out of the forest, and it's so loud. You can't even talk to the person next to you. That's Jesus' command at this time. And you know what else is interesting? is the way that Daniel responded to Jesus, and the way John responded to Jesus was the exact same. Listen to this. This is what John said. When I saw him, this is verse 17, I fell at his feet as though dead. Then he placed his right hand on me and said, do not be afraid. This is what Daniel says in chapter 10. I, Daniel, was the only one who saw the vision. Those who were with me didn't see it, but such terror overwhelmed them that they fled and hid themselves. So I was left alone, gazing this great vision. I had no strength left. My face turned deathly pale. I was helpless. And then I heard him speaking, and I listened to him. I fell into a deep sleep with my face to the ground. And he touched me and set my trembling hands on my knees and lifted me. It tells us a couple of things. Daniel's a more eloquent lighter than John is at this time. He's certainly more descriptive. But the other thing that this tells us is that the focus should be and always should be on Jesus when he reveals himself. Many of you are walking in life right now and you know Jesus. You've experienced Jesus. You have faith in Jesus. You believe in Jesus. But you don't recognize Jesus here. Jesus should send us trembling sometimes. And only he can comfort us because he's a great, big, wonderful God. And we need this God in our lives because of all the things that he does. John goes on to say, when I saw him, I fell at his feet as though dead. Then he placed his right hand on me and said, do not be afraid. I'm the first and the last. I'm the living one. I was dead and now look. I'm alive forever and ever, and I hold the keys of death and Hades. What does Jesus say after revealing himself in the presence? I am the answer to the future. It's very clear. In fact, if you read through Revelation 1, there's something that you will see. Over and over and over again. Remember when I told you about reputation? Repetition? Not reputation. We talk about Jesus' reputation and repetition here. Is repetition matters to God? Jesus is mentioned and identified over over and over and over and over and over and over and over in Revelation 1. He's the hero. I counted up 32 different descriptions and sayings by Jesus. There's only two verses in this entire passage we just read. That actually don't refer to Jesus in it. And that's verse four, which actually is a sentence that leads into Jesus. And verse eight, when the Father signs off on the vision of seeing Jesus. The emphasis is on Jesus. He is the answer. He is the answer. And who He is and what He says matters, who He is and what He does matters. John begins his letter of revelation talking about the future to make sure you don't miss the most important part of it. Look for Jesus. Like I said, too often we don't look for Jesus in our life. We don't even look for Jesus in our Bible studies. Oftentimes we read Bible studies and we go through our devotional trying to see how we change our life instead of how to seek God and glorify him. Our lives are meant for worship. We have more joy in our lives when we properly worship the Savior. Maybe we should have an unscattered focus in our lives and not be distracted by everything else that's going on and seek Jesus and let him deal with all those other things. He has a purpose for you. He's the person for you. And his presence is what he desires for you. Let's pray. Father, we love you. We thank you for this wonderful passage. We thank you for revelation, Lord, that reveals to us that you're in control of all things. And ultimately, it gives us hope. It gives us peace. And let that result in true worship to you. Let it result in walking faithfully with you because that matters to you because who you are and what you do matters. It's by your son's name we pray, amen.